You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Today we're going to be taking our text from John, the fifth chapter. We'll read a little bit to get the context. And then we'll find out what Jesus said about the, the scriptures that the Jews thought that in them there was eternal life. But these bear witness of me, these scriptures. What we'll find is the Old Testament and the New Testament alike uh, are one book, we might, or one set of books, uh, one collection of which it's all about Jesus. So we've entitled the sermon today, The Book of Jesus. In John 5, we start with a wonderful and and, uh, mighty thing that there was a man in verse 5 who had been sick for 38 years. 38 years of illness. And we think, well, how could there be any controversy over that? Today, if there's any controversy over somebody with a long and I have to say four decades, round number, four decades is a long illness. Today, if there's any controversy over a four-decade illness, it's people going, where's God? Is God good? Why would God allow this? Well, we'll find in this case, it works out to the glory of God. And in the end of this story, this man is well benefited by the grace and power of God because Jesus tells the man, he tells him in verse 8, famously, take up your pallet, or your bedding, your bedroll, take up that uh, thing which you've been lying there by the pool, take it and walk, go home, you're going to be well. And so for the first time in 38 years, here's a man who's now able fully to walk, a man who has no trouble going anywhere. Uh, Normally we'd think about if it weren't a miraculous and instantaneous full healing by God, how long would the rehab be? just to to get healthy and full strength after 38 years, but no rehab. He's immediately able to go and do what Jesus says, which is to take up that pallet and walk himself home. And everybody who has a spiritual mind, everybody who has a concern for their neighbor, everybody who sees that this man is immediately made well and can now take up his pallet and walk rejoices greatly in God. Except there's an ominous note put there at the end of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath that day. It was the Sabbath. Well, it turns out it wasn't just the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath at Passover time. And the Jews have a conniption fit when there's a man walking through town bearing a pallet. You think about Jerusalem at this time, how many folks would be walking around on the Passover Sabbath carrying anything? If there's anything being toted back and forth, maybe, maybe people are taking a lamb uh, down there uh, to the temple, or maybe they're carrying the remains of the lamb home, uh, uh, them and a friend, but nobody is carrying around a pallet. This guy is a glowing red sign of strangeness. This guy is a walking uh, violation of all the customs that they were enforcing. And so they immediately accost the man and say to him in verse 11, or say to him, pardon, in verse 10, it's the Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to carry it. And the guy says, yeah, but the guy who healed me said to take it home. 
Now, that should be a pretty good indication. You should do it. If a guy can heal you, you probably ought to do what he says. And the Jews become indignant at this and say, who's the man who told you that? Who's the man who said, take up your pallet and walk? And the man, it says, did not know who it was. And we think, well, how would he not know who it was? Well, this is, as we go through the Gospel of John, this is but the second Sabbath in Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry has only been going on for a bit more than a year. He's not spent most of his time in Jerusalem, not spent much time down there at all. And also, this fellow probably doesn't get out much. This fellow's been down by the pool uh, waiting to be healed, and he might have heard a few things, but he didn't recognize Jesus on sight. Well, Jesus came and visited him and told him that uh, it was he who did it, and the Jews then, when they found that out, they went after Jesus with a vengeance. It says in verse 16, they were persecuting Jesus because of what he was doing on the Sabbath. Oh, you mean healing people and helping them be well. Yeah, but it was on the Sabbath. Now, you mean displaying the power and the grace of God and letting those who couldn't walk, walk again. Yeah, but it was on the Sabbath. Then he told a guy to carry this, his little pallet home. Yeah, that's, that was their concern. And so this, the second Sabbath that Jesus has in his ministry, we are in John 5, and what do they already want to do? They want, it says in verse 18, all the more to kill him. When he said, the Father is now working and I am working because he made himself equal with God. It'll be at Jesus' fourth Passover. They succeed in killing him. But here it is two years before that. And they're already wanting to kill him all the more. And when Jesus gives his defense, saying he's doing the Father's will and the Father's work, they just get all the more upset. He said, my Father's working unto now, and I myself am working. For this cause the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath... But he's making himself equal to God. Making himself equal to God. Well, as it turns out, <clears throat> even here, <clears throat> less than two full years in his ministry, probably, probably about a year and a half into his ministry, the second of the four Passovers where Jesus was at, Jesus already could marshal to his defense for the claims that he and the Father were working together, working as equals, and that he and the Father are one which is one of Jesus' great I am statements in the Gospel of John, Jesus already at the early stage of his ministry could marshal some very powerful witnesses that he and the Father were in this together and he was doing the Father's will. And so this is a section we, at least I like to call and others do as well, the witnesses sermon. Because Jesus calls various witnesses forward to say, this is how we know this is God's will. He said, it's not just I'm saying this, so I'm not going to be a witness for myself. Because I have to say, if you're a witness for yourself, who always comes out well? Well, you do. When you get to tell your story as you want to tell your story, and you know, if you can't tell your story where it sounds good, when you tell it, you're really sunk, right? Which is often why defense attorneys won't let some guys get on the stand and testify in their own defense. Because what is their own defense? Their own conviction. In this case, Jesus could speak well for himself, but he says, look, I'm not going to speak for myself. I'm not going to be the only one up here saying these things. Let me direct you to another witness prior. Let me direct you to John the Baptist. There's another who bears witness of me. Well, that was John's job, to bear witness of Jesus. I know the testimony that he bears in me is true. I, you have 
sent to John, and he's born witness. So you guys asked John yourself. You sent people to John. And you asked John, John, what's this about? What are you doing? And he said, I'm not the one you should pay attention to. John said, pay attention to Jesus. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. He said, uh, he's the bridegroom, and I'm just one of the attendants. John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what they literally went out to John. John had been out there telling them about Jesus. He said, it shouldn't surprise you that I'm here. That prophet out there in the wilderness is telling you about this. And so there's witness number one. He said, but if that witness isn't enough, and he said, I don't even need to call on human witnesses. He said, I got a witness better than John. That's verse 36. The witness which I have is greater than John. Well, look, I'd like to be testified to by a prophet. When the prophet stands up and says, that's the guy, he's the man, he's the Lamb of God. Well, you think that's pretty good testimony. But Jesus said, I got a better testimony. He says, look at the works. He said, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do, these bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. What was it Nicodemus recognized at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, which is months before this? Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin Council. Uh, Nicodemus, the ruler that came to Jesus by night. How did he begin his conversation with Jesus? He said, Rabbi, you, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Because no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Now, and we have 35 specific miracles recorded in the Gospels with Jesus. And we have a few occasions where he healed everybody that came. But in John 3, which is in, you know, how many miracles do we read about that Jesus did by the time we get just to John 3? We barely started turning the pages in the book. And what's Nicodemus, with his honesty, already recognizing? This man comes from God. And then when John the Baptist himself, a little bit after this, when he would ask, are you the one really, or do we look for another? Jesus answered in Matthew 11 and said, go to report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's a combination of several prophecies, the first of which, and the only one we'll note, is Isaiah 35 and 5. You can look those up and see all, the, all of those that are there. But these miracles, which were well prophesied, these are a witness. And then Jesus says, beyond that, I'd like to call to the stand now my Father. Verse 37, the Father has sent me, and he's borne witness of me. He said, you never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, but you do, have, you do not have his word abiding in you because you don't believe him who he sent. He said, so the Father bears witness to me. Well, what happened when Jesus was baptized? And this was only a bit over a year before, and this was done in public. This is done in front of all the people there at the river that day when Jesus was baptized. What voice came from heaven? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And how often did God speak from heaven to the Jewish nation? He spoke to the Jews more than any people he's ever spoke to. But how often did he speak from heaven and give testimony to one? And you think that was hidden? You think that wasn't well known? No, he said, the Father tells me, but you people don't believe what the Father says, even when the Father says it, because, and here's where we get to the title of our text this morning, the book of Jesus, we also have as witness, as proof of what Jesus is doing and what he says, we have the scriptures. He says, 
you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Now I have to say, do the scriptures promise life? At the end of the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy 31, what did Moses say? I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Choose life. Read the Proverbs about wisdom, and wisdom is the way of life. And the, the scriptures, uh, as uh, Paul would say in Romans 7, are holy and righteous and good, but they didn't have life in and of themselves. The true life they pointed to was always the life in Jesus. That book, the entirety of it, that book pointed to Jesus. That's what Jesus says about it. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But it is these who bear witness of me. So here is witness number four. Witness number four, called for me, is going to be the scriptures. How much do the Jews claim to know and love the scriptures? This is the only society I know of in the ancient world where a leading class of people were the scribes, the people who copied the law, the people who knew it. What, what was the Pharisee stock in trade? Their knowledge and explanation of the law. What were all the religious arguments about in that day? It was about various things in the text, various words in the book. And so look all through the Gospels. These are people who had the book with them everywhere and all the time. They had little pieces of the book tied to their hands, little pieces of the book tied to their forehead, right? That's the phylacteries, isn't it? They had, these things. They had this word all, all over. They met every week to read it and discuss it. These should have been a people of the book. And Jesus says, this book tells of me. And so in, in some ways, this is, all, this is really kind of an astonishing thing. To the degree to which he wants to play on their side of the court. Now, we, we just, as Christians, we, we've taken it from, uh, you know, uh, the first time we heard the gospel. And for those of us who were raised in, in the Christian faith, how, how soon were we taught something of the gospels before we can remember it, right? Our first memories are things of church and Bible teaching. Maybe even, you know, childhood memories of vacation, Bible school, and the like. And, of course, to us, the scriptures tell about Jesus, right? Well, we, we know that. But here is Jesus standing in front of them at the revelation of Jesus at the, when this is new. And these people, the Jews think the Old Testament is their book. Of course, they didn't call it the Old Testament. Then what did they call it? They called it the Law and the Prophets. They called it the writing of Moses. They called it the book of Moses. But he wants to play this, uh, as it were, in the book of Moses. Who thinks they are the home team and who thinks they are the experts on the book of Moses? These guys think they are. But who's the real expert on the book of Moses? Jesus is. So, you know, like for today, it's not that surprising to us, is it, when the Mormons come to us with a new book called the book of Mormon, and, and lo and behold, if you read the book of Mormon, who's going to kind of be the hero? Well, the Mormons, and we should all join the Mormons. They, they had to get us a new book, right? Now, uh, there's other people who follow other books. Uh, if you went into uh, and followed uh, the Quran, who gets to be the hero there? Well, let me ask you, what if you tried to prove, what if you were a Mormon fella and you wanted to study with a Muslim fella and the Muslim fella says, I'm going to take your Book of Mormon and show you Allah. And the Mormon fella says, no, I'm going to take your Quran and I'm going to show you Joseph Smith and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Well, neither one of them had any success in that whatsoever because those two entities are not known in the other books, right? And then comes the Scientology uh, fella with all of the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. And he's playing on a different field entirely, isn't he? In so many ways. But all these people show up with, and then, you know, the next fellow shows up with the writings, of the, the key to, to health and scripture by Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, okay, now, well, how many courts are we going to need? How many different games are we going to play with these different texts? But Jesus, does, does he come in with, hey, I've got a new text for you. It's all about me. I wrote it, by the way. <laughs> but it's all about me. And it, just read that and accept that. It'll prove all the things about me. Isn't, isn't that what Dianetics is? And isn't that what Science and Health and Key to the Scripture in Christian's uh, Advent, uh, Seventh-day Advent, oh, oh, Christian Science, probably wrong one. Isn't that Christian science? Isn't that Islam? Isn't that Mormonism? Isn't that everybody with their own set of books? Guys who end up writing their own set of books end up always being the heroes of those set of books. But Jesus is in there playing on what court? He's in there playing in the court of Moses. He's in there playing in the book they've had for generations. He's in there with the book that they've had for 900 years. And what does he say? They're 900-year-old, the oldest parts of it, and then it comes forward as Revelation progresses. <clears throat> what does he say about their book, the one they have in their hands, the one that's in all of their synagogues, the one they've been copying down all their lives? What does he inform them that is really it's all about? He says, really, it's all about me, fellas. i got to say that's an astonishing claim, that your book is my book. But let me ask you, we as Christians, what do we believe about the Old Testament? Is that Old Testament for the Jews or is that book for the Christians? That's our book, isn't it? That's our book. And then as Paul would say, who's the real heir of, the ch who's the real heir of Abraham? The child of faith by what? The promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures, as taught by Jesus, our Savior, is that they are, as he says, Bearing witness of him. They are about him. As one said, in the Old Testament, we have the prophecies and predictions of Jesus. In the New Testament, we have Jesus directly. In the Gospels, we have him revealed. In Acts, we have him preached. In the Epistles, we have him explained. In Revelation, we have him expected. It's all about Jesus. From the predictions to the expectation of his return, we have the Old and New Testament both. And basically we have in the Old and the New Testament, uh, we, we have an Act 1 and we have an Act 2. As it turns out, Act 1 is kind of longer, but the, the payoff and, and the, uh, the summation in Act 2 is a bit shorter, right? If you, if you do your daily Bible reading, you know, your Old Testament's quite literally two and a half times as long as your New Testament. But in order to understand all these parts, you sort of need them both. And so uh, we have uh, Jesus revealed for us. Now, sometimes it's revealed directly. And so you think about the incompleteness of Judaism with all those prophecies just sort of uh, hanging out in midair. It's sort of like a bridge halfway finished. Uh, I remember... Uh, people used to make great fun of Bill Clinton 
and of course, people in my political profession particularly. Uh, but uh, uh, Bill Clinton uh, was famous for talking about, because he was the end of uh, the 1990s in there, and he always said, we're going to build a bridge to the 21st century, right? He said, so we're transitional and we're forward-looking. We're building a bridge to the future. And when they built this presidential library on the banks of the Arkansas River, in Arkansas, because he's from Arkansas, what did they make the presidential library building look like? It looks like one side of a bridge. There's a base of the thing that kind of looks like you know, the, 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 the structure of a bridge, and then there's a big overhanging section that shoots out over the river, and it looks like one side of the bridge. It, it's, a, it's a conscious effort to look like an unfinished bridge because they're building that future bridge. So you, in your mind's eye, you fill in the rest of the bridge. That, that's, that's, that's the imagery there. Now, all of his opponents said what? He's built a bridge to nowhere. <laughs> because what's good, what good is half a bridge? I mean, just, just imagine if you build beautiful, if you build a beautiful road going up and you build these beautiful accesses and, and you, you put in all the stanchions and all the pillars and all the posts and all the piles and all the things, and that's all the, you know, uh, road vocabulary I know at this point. But if you put in all the things and then you shoot the bridge out over the river, but you don't get to the other side, it doesn't matter how nicely you built the first side. You need that other side. And Judaism is like that. Judaism is this great bridge that starts to span a gulf. But without the New Testament completion, it's just hanging out there, isn't it? And how long have those promises been hanging out there? Those promises have been hanging out there a long time. But if they're completed in Jesus, where we got the second half of the bridge, we went up on the bridge... Of the, and we went out on faith and believing in these prophecies and believing these things promised. But then what do we see? In Jesus, we got the way to come back down safely onto the other side. So we have all of these prophecies. With, without Jesus, we've just got half a thing there. We've literally got the bridge that doesn't go anywhere. But we do, in Jesus, have the answer. So we think about things like this. And of all the fulfilled prophecies, we could multiply greatly. But we'll pick but one. In Acts 8 is the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading the prophet Isaiah as he rides along in his chariot. As I mentioned the other night in a different lesson, can you just imagine how, how the great desire you must have to know and to read the book if you're reading in a chariot? <laughs> I can't... I can barely read, you know, in a, in, a, in a luxury car on a highway. I can't imagine trying to read in a chariot on an ancient Roman road. But he is reading as he goes because he's so interested. And he's reading a passage from Isaiah. And the preacher, Philip, asked him, hearing him reading Isaiah, and says, uh, to, he, uh, he says, uh, or he's asked by the, the eunuch, uh, Philip asked him, pardon, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I let someone guide me? The passage he was reading was this, and it's Isaiah 53. It's about Jesus. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, a lamb before its shear is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And he says, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about? Is Isaiah talking about himself, or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip says, I know who he was talking about. He was talking about Jesus. Let me tell you how. 
And from Isaiah 53, he preaches to him Jesus. And it's not just Isaiah 53. There's many places you can preach Jesus from Isaiah. And you can preach Jesus from Genesis, from the book of Moses. You can preach Jesus from uh, Exodus. You can preach Jesus from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You, you just pick a book of the Old Testament. And I, I tell you, you can preach Jesus from it. Because Jesus is in the book all the way back. And so we can preach Jesus from the prophets, and we can preach Jesus from the law. We can preach Jesus from the histories. We can preach Jesus from the book, because what does Jesus say about the book? It bears witness of him. And Jesus completes, it's not just the direct prophecies, but it's all these themes and hopes of uh, of the Old Testament. And there's these various threads that weave through the Old Testament. And just to give you um, uh, two, uh, and again, we can multiply these but and, and do both of these shortly. But think about from the very first, or maybe the second, because the first story is creation. The very second story, the second story is Adam and Eve in the garden. And in that story, how important are clothes? Clothes are pretty important. Well, we find out they're naked. Then when they uh, have sinned, they find out they are naked. Then they hide themselves in the bushes. And I think, you know, the, the, one of the best explanations I've ever heard for what the whole Bible is, it is God's pursuit of sinful men in the bushes to get him back to where he should be. But uh, God in that story, uh, he, he uh, tells them about their nakedness. But then uh, on their exit from the garden, what does he do? He clothes them. But clothes become a major motif of teaching all through the scripture. Famous things like Isaiah where the, the, the works of the law that they were doing uh, without faith were like filthy rags. Or things like in the New Testament now we get the, the fulfillment of these. What does Christ do with his bride? He clothes her. What kind of clothes? White linen, bright and clean. No spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5. And then we're clothed with Christ. In the book of Colossians, in the sections there about ethical teaching. Or in the book of Revelation, oh, how do we make our robes white? We wash them in the blood of the Lamb. And in the great wedding feast of the bride and the Lamb, in Revelation 19, what's the bride presented? Fine linen, bright and clean. A beautiful set of clothes. And, you know, how is it that we have this consistent theme of the need of clothes... And then uh, the proper kind of clothes. And how is it that it just happens that all through the New Testament that keeps getting brought up and given as a promise? But what if you didn't know that story about the garden and the, and the nakedness? How many people out there in the world today, they don't know the shame of nakedness? Just look at them. They don't know. Do they know anything about clothes and spiritual clothes? No. But, but where did we learn these lessons from first? in the very first books of the Bible, the very first chapters, and where do we find it all completed? And so if you didn't get to act one, if you came in late on this, you might wonder, what's the big deal about him giving her those clothes? Oh, okay, you need to, you need to go back to act one, and you were a little late on that, you need to hit the rewind, and you need to watch that again. Or we mentioned at the very beginning of the gospel, John says to, about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everybody who knows anything is kind of going to go, oh. But if you don't know Act 1, if you don't know about sin and sacrifices, what happens when that one goes by? What's that? 
Do you ever have that friend or family member who comes in late on the movie? And what do they ask you? What's that about? Does that mean something? Is that important? Hold on. Does that connect to something before? And sometimes, especially with some of these really complicated comic book movies, if you're watching this with a bunch of nerds, not that I've ever done that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now he pays attention. But I'll be watching this movie with this bunch of nerds that I happen to hang out with occasionally, and, and something will happen, and they'll all gasp, or they'll all look at each other, or they'll all point, and they'll go, did you see that? And I'm like, did, did, what? Oh, that's so-and-so from this thing, or that, or that ties together with this, or that was in the third prequel, or, or you know, and that was, that was in the addendum text. That was, that, you know, that was in episode 34. That was in comic book 37. It's like page 14. Okay, maybe. Uh, but those guys who know that, there's a rich context there. Well, if we know our Old Testament, and John says, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, anybody who knows about sin and sacrifice goes, Oh, that's important. That's going to become really important. How is he, this living man, how is he the sacrifice? Because how long have we been having sacrifices for sin? Go back to Cain and Abel in the garden, and people are getting killed over sacrifices. And Abraham and Isaac, and God says, I'll provide the sacrifice. You sacrifice your son, but then at the last minute, God says, I'll provide the sacrifice. And at the end of the story, what does God do? He does provide the sacrifice of his own son. And so we have Jesus, the Passover lamb. Is it important that these controversies, like this one, is it important that these are at the Passover? The lamb of God's at the Passover. Oh, I know what happens to lambs at Passover. Lambs don't have a very long life expectancy at Passover, do they? But here he is who dies, and then he ever lives. And so these things... These things all come together, all these themes and all of these hopes. And so in Revelation, where we're waiting for Jesus again to return, we have this in Revelation 5. One of the elders said, stop weeping. He said, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. And then we find he took the book in verse 8. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each of them having a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the book and break the seals, for you were slain and have purchased for God with your blood men of every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and reign upon the earth. Now, just that one passage how long would the sermon be if we went back and did a proper and detailed study of the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, <clears throat> overcoming sin? If we then down to verse 8, if we looked and we studied uh, about harps and incense, uh, 24 elders, because we've got 12 tribes of Israel and I think 12 apostles, how we get our 24. If we have the new song, if we have him being slain, Purchasing for God with his blood, men from every tribe and language and tongue, being a kingdom, being priest, and reigning on the earth. Look at all, I mean, the, the amount of things that's packed in that, the, the amount of threads that are being finally all pulled together and made into one complete and whole tapestry. And then we might go to chapter 15, where what are the angels of heaven singing? The song of Moses and the Lamb. 
And so you can sing Moses and the Lamb, and you can't sing the songs of Moses and complete them without the Lamb. But you also, you can't sing about the Lamb without knowing something about Moses, right? And so you get to heaven, and they're singing Moses and the Lamb, and some go, uh, who's this Moses fellow again? <laughs> no, we, we're gonna, we know because we, we studied our Old Testament. We've studied Act 1. We've studied the story. But these Jews, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, when Moses is read, it's like a veil is laid over their hearts. They didn't accept the things of Jesus. And so in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then, what's that veil thing? Moses in the mountain, remember that? Paul made very brief mention. He expected his audience to know. So there's a veil. If you try to read the scriptures without acknowledging Jesus, there is a veil over your heart. God has never promised the Bible is going to reveal anything to the person who reads it just out of curiosity or the literature professor who just reads it because it's a well-told story or the philosopher uh, who reads it because he wants to see if he can find anything that supports his theory or just uh, he reads it as, you know, intellectual history of this is what people used to believe or the professor or any kind of academic who approaches the Bible in a skeptical or critical or worldly way. What are they going to get out of it? They're not going to get the truth of it because there's a veil over their heart that's lifted over in Christ, only in Christ. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, there were some disciples discussing as they went about the things with Jesus. And they were greatly sad because Luke 24, 21, they were hoping it was he who would redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, it was the third day since it happened. And they were amazed. And they asked, Jesus came and said, what are you talking about? And he, they, they told him all that. And they said, but then some of the ladies went to the tomb and they couldn't find the body. And we don't know what's going on. And Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25, he said, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter to his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. And that, folks, is the rest of the New Testament for us, explaining the things of Jesus that were spoken in the Scripture. In the Gospels, he was with us, but most people didn't even get who he was. But after the book of Acts, in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, it is well known and begins to be preached. And like Jesus did, it begins to be explained. And like these men said after that time with Jesus, were not our hearts burning within us, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And so we can have our hearts encouraged and taught and uplifted and affected by the explanation of the things of Jesus that are in the gospel. And so Jesus concluded, going back all the way to where we started, which is John 5, Jesus said, this book is about me. And it, it teaches you and leads you to me. And so if you don't listen to that, John 5, 45, do not think I'll accuse you before the Father. I won't have to condemn you, he says. The one who's going to accuse you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. 
You've hoped in Moses. But Moses tried to tell you about me. Deuteronomy 18. I'll raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth and he'll speak to them all, to them all I command. It'll come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses said, I'll be there. I'll be there condemning you myself if you don't listen to that prophet when he comes. And so Jesus said, Moses himself will accuse you in whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so the whole thing is the book of Jesus, the part that predicts him, the part that reveals him, the part that explains him, the part that says we expect him to return. It's all there in the book of Jesus. With that, then, we'll close today, asking you if uh, uh, you need to consider these things uh, deeply and take them to heart. And Does it make your heart burn to think about these things? Uh, if it does in a way that is a conviction of conscience, we pray you might act upon that to confess Jesus or confess sin to return to him. Or if it stirs your heart and encourages you, uh, we pray you may keep with that devotion and follow him all the days. With that, we'll close asking if you need to come to the invitation as we stand. And sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.